Good morning again. Again, my name is Andrew. It's one of the great joys of my life to be the pastor here, and I am thankful to be with you all this morning. I'm just grateful for you guys preaching the gospel to me through song as you sing to me. I'm the only one of the only people in the room who gets to um, that you're always singing at me. It's wonderful because um, I'm sit between the choir and the congregation, and so I love it. If you've got Bibles with you, and I hope you do, uh, turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we'll start at verse 1. I'll read the first 13 uh, verses. Romans is about 75% of the way through the Bible. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and then the letter to the Romans. Romans is a letter written by a dude named Paul. Uh, Paul hated Jesus and his church until he met him, and his life was uh, turned upside down. And Paul lived out the rest of his days trying to make Jesus famous among a group called Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles is a, um, an, ancient, it's an ancient religious word. It just means anybody who's not Jewish. Anybody who's not Jewish. So most of us in this room are not ethnically Jewish. And so we would qualify as Gentiles. The word in Greek is goyim. It just means the nations, the people, anybody who's not Jewish. And so he spent his life trying to convince non-Jewish people to follow the Jewish Messiah. And so that's what you and I do. We follow the Jewish Messiah, Jesus the Christ, uh, who reveals God accurately. And he writes this letter to a church he's never been to. And he's taught them all the doctrine he can think to teach them. He has taught them uh, the gospel in, um, in all of its granular detail. And now from chapter 12 through chapter uh, 16, he is going to highlight the implications. And here in 15, he's going to talk about their worship together And it may not seem like that, but that's what he's talking about. So let's read it together, and then we'll uh, hear how this transforms our worship. Romans 15, starting at verse 1. It says this, it says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, quote, The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me, end quote. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up. One will arise to rule over the nations, and in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. I don't normally do this, but if you brought your own Bible today and you have a pen or a pencil, 
you might want to underline a few of these sentences because I can think of few things that I need written on my heart more than a few of these sentences. Verse 4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. I would either underline that verse or put a line by it, something to help you find it next time. It's saying that God gave you the Bible to give you two things, encouragement and encourage you, to give you encouragement and to give you endurance. And out of those two things married together, you will have hope because of Jesus. The next verse, may God who gives endurance and encouragement. Aren't you glad to know that God gives both encouragement and endurance? And then lastly, the very end, this is his prayer for the people in verse 13. I don't know about you, but I want this to be true of my life. I want this prayer to be fulfilled in my life. I want God to answer verse 13 in my life. And so if you do too, you can just underline that verse and pray it over your life again and again and over your friend's life. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anybody want to overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit? Anybody else desperate to overflow with hope? We live in a world that is desperate for hope the way a desert is desperate for water. May we be people who overflow with hope. That's all free. None of that's in the sermon. I'm not going to charge you extra for that. I'm not even going to ask for a raise. Um, Let's pray and ask God to speak to us. God, I know you're here because you have promised to be with your people. Your word says that you abide, the, you abide in the praises of your people. Your word says that you are near to the brokenhearted, but you are far from the proud, that a broken and a contrite spirit you will not despise. Your word says that two things you have spoken, one thing I have heard, that you, my God, are loving and you, my God, are strong and that we will see and taste your goodness in the land of the living. And we pray today would be such a day, that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day where we see, where we uh, taste and see that the Lord is good, where we see that you are good and trustworthy here, now, in the land of the living, that we would not wait until we enter into rest, but we want eternal life right here, right now. We pray, King Jesus, that you would accomplish what your word just taught us to pray, that you would give us hope, that we would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you use these words today to accomplish your will in us? For your glory and our joy, we ask it, trusting in you, Jesus. Amen. Over the last several weeks, we have been um, remembering a time 500 years ago. I'm going to trip over these, and you guys are going to laugh at me. Um, We've been celebrating a time 500 years ago where what we call the Protestant Reformation, a man named Martin Luther, after uh, years, centuries of um, attempts to reform uh, the church from the inside, after the church had gotten further and further and further away from the heart of God, uh, a man named Martin Luther uh, starts, uh, he doesn't even intend to, he starts a Reformation movement to debate uh, 95 theses that he nails to a cathedral door in a little obscure place called Wittenberg in Germany. And uh, that escalates very, very quickly because it hinged on certain uh, key pieces of doctrine and it turned into this in the, what ended up being called the Protestant Reformation. 
That started on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago. And what came out of that was this enormous reclamation, re, uh, reclaiming of the truth of the gospel as it's revealed in Scripture. And we have been working through what, how the church was reformed 500 years ago because we are realizing again and again that if there's any hope for transformation in my life, if there's any hope for transformation in your life, if there's any tra- hope for transformation in the church's life in general, it will come not through innovation, but through reformation. The word reform means to, uh, quite honestly, to reshape back to the original shape. If you had, um, when I was a kid, we used to uh, circle around construction sites on our bikes with magnets looking for bent nails because none of us made enough an allowance to buy nails and so we'd go find bent nails that the carpenters had discarded we'd carry them home and we would hand straighten every single one of them so that we could build these elaborate tree houses out of scrap lumber to be reformed is like straightening a bent nail each of us has been bent and we talked about that last week last week I I told you uh, that at the core of each human being the way God built us God is set a throne inside of us. God has set a throne in our heart, in our soul, in our person where God was intended to sit and to dwell, not to lord over us, not to enslave us, not to create um, spirits of fear or of cowardice, but to give us worth and value, to give us security and to give us hope that we would operate out of the platform, out of the foundation, um, out of the sure and certain knowledge that we are loved, that we belong, uh, that there is uh, all the power in the universe is at our backing to, to lift us up to support us to put us in places where we can flourish and thrive that's what we are built for but none of us have ever known that perfectly because every human heart has rebelled against God has just deposed God off that throne has mutinied against him has led a coup de, a violent coup d'etat against God and has replaced God on the throne of our heart with something other than God for some of us it's success some of it's our family some of it is the appearances and people pleasing some of it is the appearance of being perfect for some of us it's cold hard cash others of us it's our spouse and we all put these things on there and we can, we can diagnose these things. The Bible calls them idols. And idols are much bigger than just a golden statue of a foreign god. Idols are anything I look to to give me satisfaction and hope and security which only God can give. Friends, what is wrong with the world? This week we have seen unbelievable uh, things. We have seen uh, allegation after allegation after allegation of sexual assault, sexual misconduct, of uh, lewd and lascivious language. We have seen things that make me furious, make my skin boil. And it's not just in uh, Hollywood. It's in D.C. It's not just in D.C. It's in Alabama. It's not just in Alabama. It's in Cleveland. It is We've seen uh, violence committed in a church. We've seen violence committed um, by uh, civilians, violence committed um, by uh, police officers. We have seen unbelievable things. It hit me this week, something I've never thought about, that the majority of all suffering in the world, we tend to cry out to God, where are you, God? God, you, are, you cannot be good if you let this happen when it comes to earthquakes and tsunamis and those things. But friends, the vast, vast, vast majority of suffering in the world According to the Bible, all the suffering in the world comes from the sinfulness of human hearts. It does. Earthquakes wouldn't be so deadly if we would uh, distribute resources and and make sure that people had adequate houses. And we talked about that last week, that on the throne of my heart, I have deposed God and put something else. And that I sit down and I bow down and I worship something other than God. 
but Christ Jesus has come. And so in Christ Jesus' life, we see two things very, very clearly, clearer than any other place in all of history, clearer than any other place, the place where we have a laser focus, um, concentration of the gospel, the place where we see what God is like and what human beings are like in a magnifying glass, in a crucible, is on the cross of Jesus, where we see God's incredible demonstration of love. God so loved the world that God sent his only begotten son, gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting love. Uh, Romans chapter five, verse eight says that on the cross, God has demonstrated his love for this, that Christ came to die for the ungodly. We see God's immense, incredible for us love. And on the flip side of that, we see the natural response of every human heart to that love. It's to look at God and say, you want a throne? You want a throne? I will give you a throne. And to not just reject God, but to murderously reject him and put him on the throne on a tree. And we saw that we uh, collectively, that all of our lives are affected by this, that all of our society is affected by this, and that true repentance, true Christian evangelical repentance is not just um, going to church and saying I'm sorry and then going and continuing about our days. It's not just um, some kind of religious uh, observance that I can quantify and trade merits for demerits. Instead, repentance is a true, is a whole life submitted to the Lordship and the reign of Christ Jesus. True repentance involves my whole life. And this week we want to talk about how that overflows in personal worship, but specifically how that reforms the way we as a body, we as a church worship when we get together. Because all of my life is worship. Every action I do is worshiping something, is built on the foundation that this is what matters most. And so we want to talk about how recovering the gospel, the gospel that you and I are saved by grace alone, but through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. What is called the five soli, or the five solas, if you uh, kind of anglicize it, or whatever that's called. Um, the five onlys, the five non-negotiables of the gospel. Faith, God, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, glory to God alone. How those reform our corporate worship. And we're going to see this um, just by going one at a time. Uh, the first one is that you and I are saved uh, by grace alone. You and I are saved by grace alone. Uh, grace, if you're not uh, from a religion, if you, if you didn't grow up Christian, if you did not grow up around churches, uh, and maybe if you did and they just weren't very good, uh, then grace is very simply defined as getting what you do not deserve. Grace is getting something you do not deserve. Uh, technically, grace is a gift given out of love in a relationship. You get grace because someone loves you, not because you earned it. It's the same reason you get a present. It's because somebody loves you, not because you bought it. And so grace, you and I are saved by grace alone. And there's nothing we add to, there's nothing we add to the equation. We don't come and God pays $99 and we pay $1. God doesn't come 99% of the way and we've got to take one step towards God. If it were up for us to take one step towards God, do you know what would happen? I can tell you, it already happened. It was the cross. If we had to play a part, our part would be driving nails. 
Um, We don't. We simply open-handedly receive what God's given. And so worship, friends, so what we do on Sunday mornings is not something we do to get in God's good graces. Worship is not something we do to propitiate God Taurus. That word propitiate appears in your Bibles. It means to make God favorably disposed towards you, favorably um, to make God like you. We're not here trying to get God to like us. This is not an elaborate dance to, to, to impress God. This is not American Idol triumphs. This is not um, God's got talent triumphs. We're not here saying, oh, God, pick me, pick me, pick me. Look how sorry I am. Look how good I am at singing. Look how good I can play the piano. Look how nice I am dressed. None of that is what we're here to do. Instead, all of this, all of this grows out of an assurance that God has already done that for us. And so we're here not to earn God's favor, but we're here to enjoy God's favor. We're here to celebrate what God has done. When we get this wrong, we will turn worship into a performance meant to get God's favor. Before the Reformation happened, over over centuries, over more than a millennia, the church had devolved worship into a performance done to earn extra credit before God. And it was specifically kind of honed into uh, what was what, it, what was called the Mass. And the Mass was a celebration of communion or the Lord's Supper in a specific way with specific thoughts behind it. The Mass was um, primarily during this time, during a medieval Christianity, um, was conceived of as a sacrifice made to satisfy God's anger against sin and made to make God like us again. It was thought of in the same way uh, that bulls and goats were sacrificed in the Old, temp- in the old Temple in the Jewish religion. And instead, uh, they came, to believe, they came to believe in medieval Christianity uh, that when we broke the bread, it was like we were re-sacrificing the lamb, but instead of a lamb, we were actually re-sacrificing Christ. We were putting Christ to death again to, sac- to satisfy uh, the wrath of God and to accomplish um, God's favor for us. It was a sacrifice to cover our sins, and if you needed more sins covered, if let's just say you were a un- uniquely wicked, um, if you were uh, just really bad at, I don't know, telling the truth or not killing people, um, but you were wealthy, you could just pay a priest to perform private masses on your behalf. And so masses were said, even if there was nobody in the, the church, um, because they were, they were meant to kind of build up uh, the church's bank account, the saint's bank account. And if you were rich, you would pay for a priest who would just stand in a chapel and say the mass liturgy over and over and over and over again to earn you credits before God, to to pad your spiritual bank account and worship turned more or less into magic you know the difference between magic and faith magic is something I do that manipulates the spiritual powers I say a magic formula and something happens somewhere in the universe it's the same as an idea of an incantation or a spell Um, many many people who do not understand Christianity believe that prayer is incantation that prayer is magic spells that I say that make God do things that manipulate God prayer is not that but this is how worship gets manipulated because I don't want Christ on the throne I want me on the throne and when I do that uh, you get all kinds of crazy things that were happening you had um, people would light candles and the candle was thought to pray on their behalf that a burning candle somehow would pray for a human being. Uh, this is still a tradition um, in other religions. Uh, in Buddhism, uh, you would write a prayer on a flag so that every time the flag flies, it's praying on your behalf. Or you would um, write a prayer on a wheel, and every time the wheel spins, it, you get credit for that prayer. Um, really smart, technological, uh, savvy uh, Buddhists will write them on old magnetic hard drives. 
Because think about how many times you can spin a, a mechanical wheel. You might be able to spin it 60 times in a minute. How fast does an old magnetic hard drive spin? 5,200 RPMs, I think. So you're getting 5,200 prayers a minute. And you're getting a lot of credit. But during the Reformation, we saw that we're saved by grace. And so all of worship flows from a place of deep thankfulness. Worship Worship in a Christian sense, worship in the evangelical sense is a celebration, not a sacrifice. Nothing we do here today, including the money we put on that table, is a sacrifice. The one sacrifice that atones for all sin, the one sacrifice that was made once and for all forever, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the once and for all propitiation, the once and for all sacrifice was Christ Jesus. And every sacrifice before Christ, every lamb that was killed, every bull that was slain was pointing forward to that sacrifice was just a sign saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. And if we think of what we're doing in here as a sacrifice, then we have looked away from Jesus and we're not accepting grace. We're trying to earn favor. Worship is not begging for God's grace. It is enjoying it. It is, it's, worship celebrates Christ's sacrifice. And we see this. So the primary thing that happens in worship is gratitude. You saw this in Colossians chapter three. We only read a few verses, but in those three verses, In those uh, three verses we read, the word thankful or gratitude appears in every single verses. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as one body you were called to peace and be thankful. And then later on it says, sing to God to make God happy. No, it does make God happy. He tells us that. But it says, sing to God with gratitude in your hearts, with gratitude in your hearts. And then finally it says, everything you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God through him. None of what we do is to earn God's favor. It is to give thanks that we already have it. Friends, the difference between a moralist and a Christian, the difference between a legalist and a Christian is a moralist, a legalist, is being good to make God love them, is being good out of duty, out of obligation, out of some um, kind of magical ritual formula that if I don't do this and I do do this and I don't do this and I do do this, some spiritual combination lock will, will, un, will unclass somewhere and I will get into heaven. Christians, on the other hand, don't do this, do do this, don't do this, don't do this, because Christ already loves me, and I want to live like that is true. I want to live like my daddy. I want to live like my brother Jesus. I want to live as though Christ is the truest, most fundamental thing in the entire world, and he loves me, not because of what I have done, but because of what he has done. And so all of worship comes out of thanksgiving. And so we saw that the mass turns, the, the mass at the Lord's Supper does not become a magic spell, uh, that prayer is not a magic um, thing that we do to make God do stuff. Prayer is communication with God. Uh, that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do so not to, to manipulate God, uh, but to enjoy God's presence here with us. Second, through faith alone. Uh, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Grace alone through faith alone. Uh, Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Think about it. That's a crazy sentence. Without faith, it is impossible. You can be the best person in the world. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so worship, friends, when we come together, it is about fostering faith. It is about um, strengthening failing knees. It is about your faith and our collective faith. Before the Reformation, it was believed before uh, this was recovered, and now, um, and, and the Catholic Church no longer believes this, but for a while it was believed, it was commonly thought that the priest had faith for you, that, that you got credit for the priest's faith. 
that you had faith in the priest and the priest had faith in Jesus. And so by like the, uh, what's that called? The um, distributed property of mathematics? No, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, it doesn't much matter. You had faith in the priest's faith. And so he was the only one who really did anything. He was the only one who did anything in worship because it was his faith that mattered and you were kind of brought under the priest umbrella. And so all of church had very little to do with you or your faith. In fact, before the Reformation, uh, there was no congregational singing. All the music was performed by professional choirs and professional musicians. The congregation didn't say anything or sing anything. They watched a, they watched a priest uh, perform the sacrifice on the altar, often behind a screen to obscure him, so they couldn't even see what he was doing, saying words in Latin that they could not understand. Um, when he did preach, he almost always preached in Latin in a way that they couldn't understand it. The average uh, Christian, the average congregant, did not, their faith did not matter. But we see that uh, Christ doesn't want the priest to have faith only. He wants you and I. He wants every one of us to have faith in him. And so we see this in Romans 15. It says in verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ before the Reformation, before this reclaiming of the gospel, it was often thought that that one mind and one voice was the priest mind and the priest voice. And you just sat there and shut up and tried not to get distracted by uh, something else. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is he wants all of our voices to be raised together. He wants us to accept one another as Christ has accepted you. He wants us to collectively glorify God that we might have the mind of Christ towards each other, that we might all have faith, that you here today are a priest, that I am not a priest. I do not call myself a priest. I do not want to be a priest. I'm just another believer. My specific task is to explicate the word of Christ. But here today, we are all priests. And so you and I here are all active participants in worship. And so one of the things that changed tremendously, one of the things uh, that has changed the world is that through the Reformation, congregational hymn singing was recovered. The, the immediately, Reformed churches, John Calvin's church and Ulrich uh, uh, Zwingli's church and uh, Martin Luther's churches immediately started singing again. They taught the music uh, to the congregation. And in order to do so, they had to dumb it down a good bit. Everybody I've been here been thinking, this song is varsity level, and I cannot sing this song. Like, anybody ever sung one of those? Like, I sing one at least once a week. We'll, Cleo will pick out a song, and I'll be like, goodness gracious, this is, this is a beautiful song, but this is varsity. And I'm still kind of operating at that JV level, like middle school uh, slacker bench team in the singing department. But they, they did that. But they wouldn't just dumb it down. They did incredible things with this. Martin Luther wrote some 30 hymns in the Reformed Church. Uh, John Calvin and his associates uh, set to, they, they set to work putting all 150 psalms to music to make sure that the word of God was hidden in that. Instead of the priest performing uh, the mass, and the people were invited to celebrate the sacrament uh, week in and week out. John Calvin fought vigorously to have it celebrated every single week. Every single week. Whereas in the old tradition, because it was high, holy magic, you only really had communion once a year. And even then, the priest would not give you the wine because he was afraid that you would spill it, you nasty, dirty pagan. But when it's about faith and not about performance, then it was, let's celebrate what God's done. Let's celebrate it as many times as we possibly could. 
And so you and I worship. We come into the throne room of grace. And so uh, the churches started to write liturgies where the people were involved, calling and responding. And they started to write all of worship in the vernacular. And so they moved from Latin to German and Latin to French and Latin to, um, to Anglo-Saxon and Latin uh, to English and Latin uh, to Dutch. And all of a sudden they start uh, worshiping in a way that actually fertilizes your faith because you understand and it takes your faith and allows you to worship God together. And all of that points uh, to Christ alone and Christ alone and Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. That all of worship became uh, about Jesus. Everything we do points to Jesus. It's not to make me famous. It's not to make anybody else here famous. And the reason you and I can worship is because of Jesus. And we must never forget that we are here today because Jesus has created access to the Father for us. That Jesus and his death on the cross, I'm trying not to light myself on fire, I'm sorry. (laughs) That Jesus has created an access into God's throne room for us on it by his death on the cross. That you and I come into the throne room and worship God, not because we can get it right. The funniest thing about worship debates to me is the sense in which every side that debates whether we should play on the organ or on the electric guitar, whether we should um, sing hymns or whether we should use projectors, whether we should, all of it is this underlying. It's all nostalgia or preference masked in this language of we should or we ought to or God's worst blankety, blankety, blank and trying to fill in those blanks. But you and I, we don't come to worship God because we're going to get it right. We won't. We just won't. This sermon won't be perfect. I guarantee it. It I already messed up. I almost let myself on fire. The sermon won't be perfect. And so... If I can't do it perfect, why would I do it? Well, Jesus is our worship leader. Jesus did not, Jesus isn't up there just like reclining at the Father, just kind of watching it and saying, well, I did it for you now. Y'all don't mess it up. Like, get it right. Jesus is up there worshiping his Father with us, for us. He's collecting our worship and bringing it to the Father on our behalf. He is the worship leader who corrects our errors, who brings our prayers before the Father, and who talks to God on our behalf. That Jesus allows us to experience God's presence here and now, right now. And we see this is revealed in Scripture alone. And so the Reformation recovered the primacy of the, of the Word of God, recovered the primacy of the Bible, put the Bible uh, back into churches, put the Bible back into worship services. Beforehand, um, Churches, parishes, especially rural ones, might get a sermon once a year. Once a year. Uh, there was this uh, bishop, Bishop Latimer, who was English. And Bishop Adam Latimer uh, was a really kind of salty guy. And he coined this phrase for these priests who were lazy. And he said, he called them strawberry priests. He said, because like strawberries, they only show up once a year. And so you might get one sermon a year on the Word of God. And John Calvin describes those sermons as one half, um, ran, one half like random legal ramblings about rulings of the church in Rome. And then the second half would be um, quaint, funny farm stories with a few uh, proverbs from the Bible mixed in. Uh, one bishop in, in England, a guy named John Hooper, uh, he was eventually murdered. Um, he was burned at the stake in England at, during the Reformation. Uh, he was appointed as a bishop, and so he set about visiting all the, uh, the priests in his diocese, and this is what he found. He said he examined thir- 311 
clerics, 311 um, priests or pastors, clerics. Of that 311, 168 of them were not able to repeat the Ten Commandments. 168 professional paid clergy could not repeat the Ten Commandments. And of whom 31 were unable to state in what part of the scriptures the Ten Commandments were found. 40 out of 40 people, 40 of these clergy could not tell you where the Lord's Prayer was written in the Bible. And 31 of them, 31, one out of 10 people could not tell you who wrote the Lord's Prayer. Does that that not boggle your mind that one out of 10 pastors and this man's, this bishop's diocese could not tell you who wrote the Lord's Prayer? And it's like, what color is the White House? You remember that Geico commercial? Like, who wrote the Lord's Prayer? Like, the Lord did. That's why we call it the Lord's Prayer. And so immediately the reformers uh, got to work preaching the word of God, translating the word of God. I told you a few weeks ago that Martin Luther immediately translated uh, the New Testament into German and sent it off to the uh, printing press and had it published again and again and again and again. Uh, They started preaching every single week. Uh, These guys preached at a rate that exhausts me. They preached two different sermons on Sundays and then they turned around and preached every single day of the week except Saturday. They would preach on Sundays. They would preach their way uh, straight through a book of the Bible like Matthew, a verse Verse by verse by verse. Ulrich Zwingli uh, preached straight through the book of Matthew first. Uh, John Calvin would preach a New Testament on Sundays and he'd preach Old Testament Monday to Friday. Because you think the Old Testament's a lot longer. And so he, had to, he gave it five days, gave the New Testament um, one day a week. Can you imagine that? Seven sermons a week. And then they wrote commentaries. John Calvin wrote a commentary on every single book of the Bible except Revelation. And Revelation, he just wrote a note at the end of his commentary and said, I ain't smart enough for this which has been an encouragement for me. But they didn't want to just preach it because they realized some people are not auditory, oral learners, and so they immediately set to work putting the scripture to song because music does something to our hearts. It's like Velcro. It just sticks truth to us. It's uh, the medicine that lets the truth go down. And so they immediately started singing scripture. They started setting songs to scripture as best they could with the catchiest tunes they could so that it would get stuck in your head. And it, they were famous Protestants, these people who followed, um, who, who recovered the gospel. They were famous famous for ordinary things and one of my favorites is they were famous for humming for singing hymns at their workplace they were just famous for singing christian songs while they hoed the garden or while they wash clothes oh that we again would recover the gospel that made us sing these songs while we were doing dishes or hymns some of you can remember your grandmama sitting there with a washboard humming amazing grace as she did it Lastly, to glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. All that we do is about giving God glory and spreading God's glory to the nations. I specifically chose Roman 15 because of that. It shows us the goal, the purpose of all of worship. Everything we do here on Sunday mornings is about enjoying Christ, but not just so that we can be edified, but that God's word might come through us. You see this in uh, verse 7, 8, and 9, and then following all the way to the end, it says, as just then as Christ accepted you, accept one another in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so the promises may be made The promises made to the patriarchs may be confirmed. And moreover, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
Friends, a man named John Piper is a pastor up in Minnesota says it this way. He says, worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. It is the goal of missions because in mission, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. The Lord reigns, let the entire earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Let the peoples praise you. But worship is not just, but worship is also the fuel for missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. If you cannot commend what you do not cherish, let me say that again. You cannot commend what you do not cherish. We, friends, we were built to worship. We were built to appreciate the worth of God and simultaneously to receive our worth from a connection with God. And when we worship, we come alive. We And when we come alive, we cannot help but invite others into God's life-giving presence. Friends, you cannot make disciples of Jesus unless you enjoy Jesus in worship. But friends, if you're not making more and better disciples, then you're not fully worshiping. Because we share what we love. We brag on what we enjoy. We do. We brag on what we enjoy. And you know this in your life experiences. These glasses cost me $16, $16. And my wife told every human being she met for the next month and a half where they came from. Like, no lie, we'd be in the grocery store and she'd say, hey, do you, I see you're wearing glasses. You know what? Um, there's this great website. It's, you need to go on there, you can get glasses really cheap. You're, you'll, have to talk to your opti- your, uh, you'll have to get your prescription from your eye doctor and they won't want to give it to you, but you've got, you got to get it and you've got to put it in this website and you can get glasses cheap like this. We'd be, at the, we'd be sitting there at dinner eating and the waitress would come up and she'd be wearing glasses or she'd squint at something and my wife would say, hey, let me tell you about a website. Because <laughs> we share what we enjoy. And if I'm not sharing something, it's because I don't think it's that big a deal. And so if I'm not sharing Christ, if what we do in this room does not spread into Monday through Saturday, if what we do for this hour and 15 or hour and a half or whatever we're here on doesn't start to spread out in the rest of my life, then am I I worshiping? Am I cherishing? Am Am I saturated in that? And when I go out there and I try to do it and I, I come back desperate to hear the gospel again and it starts this cycle all over again. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you glory. We recognize it is a privilege to have your word. It is a gift beyond our wildest belief. Forgive us when we neglect your scriptures. It is a privilege to be able to sing to you. Forgive us when we say, I don't have a good enough voice or I don't like singing. When there were thousands of men and women who died to give us this book, not so it could sit on our nightstand, but so that it could hide in our hearts. That there were thousands of men and women who died to write hymnals so that we could give you glory, so that we could learn to cherish you in our hearts. That you have created music so that we could learn to cherish you and to love you. And so we come to you and we, we just say that you're worth it. You're worth it. You alone are worth it. You are worth our whole lives. You're worth more than just this time, this morning, that you're worth all of it. And we want the whole world to know. I want every one of my cousins to know. I want every one of my neighbors to know. So Jesus, would you use us? Would you use us to make yourself famous? And maybe one of your neighbors brought you here this morning and you're hearing this for the first time and something has clicked. And I don't know what that is, but something's clicked in you and you're realizing that you have not been giving God God's due.
and that you're robbing from yourself, that you're settling for something less than God's best, and the Bible calls that sin, you can be reconciled to God right now by just saying, yes, Jesus, I admit I'm a savior. I believe you died to save me, and I commit to following you for the rest of my life. That's not a magic prayer. It's just talking to Jesus, but he answers us when we call. We trust you, Jesus, because of your death on the cross. In your name we pray. Amen. Out of gratitude,